This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, I've been happily the host of Radio Parallax now for, what is it, 18 years, Mr. McMillan? One thing we don't get a chance to talk enough about, I think, is Parallax itself. And for those of you vague on the concept, Parallax shows up in two fields, ophthalmology and astronomy. Hold your finger out at arm's length and look at it through your left eye and your right eye, and you will notice that the apparent position shifts against the background. That's Parallax, which is why we've had the motto on this program that Radio Parallax is a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view. So I have to say it was to our great delight that Parallax appeared in the news a few days ago because NASA's New Horizons space probe, which whizzed past Pluto back in 2015, taking unprecedented close-up pictures of the now demoted dwarf planet, Well, New Horizons, as you know, is continuing to stream out into space. It is currently 46 astronomic units away from the sun. And one astronomic unit is how far we are from the sun, 93 million miles. Which means, when you do the math, New Horizons is 4.3 billion miles away. Which means that if you point its cameras out into space and pick some of the stars that are on the closer side, it's so far away that their position will appear to shift from their position here on Earth. The scientists performed this experiment and indeed picked up significant shifts in the positions of both Proxima Centauri and the star known as Wolf 359. We should also plug an interview we conducted some years back with astronomer Alan Hirschfield about his book Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos tells the tale of how astronomers were determined to find out how far away the stars were and reasoned correctly that the positions of nearby stars would shift versus the stellar background if you measure their position six months apart. That would, in essence, give you two eyes that weren't 62 millimeters apart like most of our human eyes are, but 200 million miles apart or something close to that. Even with that large a baseline, it was pretty tough to measure how far away the stars were. And although it's very cool that they were able to pick up a shift by using the cameras on this tough little spacecraft, the distances involved still don't get you actually very close to the stars. In fact, at the rate the New Horizons is traveling, it won't get out to the area where Proxima Centauri is, not that it's pointed in that direction anyway, but even if it was, it would take 54,000 years to get there. We decided to do a little thought experiment to see uh, how these distances stack up. Here's what we come up with. If that distance between the two cosmic eyes, as it were, the 4.3 billion mile distance, was set against the two and a half inches about between the human eyes, then the question would be, how far out is that star that we're seeing shift in position? Mr. Millen, of course, loves when we do these kinds of thought problems. Absolutely. <laughs> In fact, he's pounding down a couple of Red Bulls as we speak. But I think it's cool to note that even if you had 4.3 billion miles to separate those two eyes, those two different observer positions, you'd be looking at 
Proxima Centauri as 1,183 feet away. Obviously, shifting between your left and right eye is not causing a large shift against the background. But what a cool thing to try and what a cool thing to succeed at. Our hats off to the New Horizons team. And in other news related to Proxima Centauri, a segue heretofore never used on this program, it turns out that other crack scientists have now confirmed a second exoplanet. A few years ago, they were able to confirm the existence of Proxima Centauri b, a planet which, remarkably, is about the size of the Earth and, even more remarkably, orbits in the Goldilocks zone around Proxima Centauri b, meaning that if there's water on the surface, it could be in a liquid state. Now, earlier this year, researchers in Italy announced that there was some evidence, not conclusive, that there may be another planet around the nearest star to us, besides our own sun. And now after checking their data, they're convinced that it's there, and they've actually photographed it. What's also cool about it is that uh, this planet, Proxima Centauri c, was inferred from some data from the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble is able to take very precise measurements of a star's position, and when they looked at Proxima Centauri, they thought they detected a bit of a wiggle, the wiggle being caused by this rather larger planet orbiting further out. And they took a look at some of the images of Proxima Centauri and found dots right where they should be. This marks the very first time that a planet has been visualized after its uh, existence was inferred from this measurements of the star's wiggle, which is not a scientific term, but, you know, one I think you understand. There's even one additional little cool factoid here. Proxima Centauri C is calculated to have a mass seven times larger than the Earth, which puts it a little bit bigger than Neptune. But... When they visualized it, it was bright enough to appear five times the size of Jupiter, which is way, way bigger, which means that it's possible that this newly discovered planet has rings around it, like Saturn, causing it to reflect a great deal more light than would be expected. All right, returning down to planet Earth, we note that on last week's show, or maybe it was the show before, I'm not sure, we talked about the stock market and how uh, it tends to get confused with the economy. We put out a call for some feedback on this subject, and I'm holding here in my hands uh, an article that I was referred to by uh, by, by Edward McMillan. The Edward McMillan? Yes. Yay. This is an article from The Atlantic. It actually dates from October 2017. The title of it is How Money Became the Measure of Everything. And I think this is worth a bit of a detour. I'm sure you agree, Mr. McMillan. Cash-wise, what would it be worth? (laughs) To quote from it, Two centuries ago, America pioneered a way of thinking that puts human well-being in economic terms. Noted the article by Eli Cook, money and markets have been around for thousands of years. Yet, as central as currency has been to so many civilizations, people and societies as different as ancient Greece, imperial China, medieval Europe and colonial America, did not measure residents' well-being in terms of monetary earnings or economic output. In the mid-19th century, the United States, and to a lesser extent other industrializing nations like England and Germany, departed from this historical pattern. It was then that the American business people and policymakers started to measure progress in dollar amounts, translating social welfare based on people's capacity to generate income. 
This fundamental shift in time transformed the way Americans appraised not only investments in business, but also their communities, their environment, and even themselves. The article notes that today well-being may seem hard to quantify in a non-monetary way, but indeed other metrics from incarceration rates to life expectancy have held sway in the course of the country's history. The turn away from these statistics and toward financial ones means that rather than considering how economic development could meet Americans' means, the default stance in policy, business, and everyday life is to assess whether individuals are meeting the exigencies of the economy. Until the 1850s, by far the most popular and dominant form of social measurement in 19th century America and Europe, were a collection of social indicators known then as moral statistics, which quantified such phenomenon as prostitution, incarceration, literacy, crime, education, insanity, pauperism, life expectancy, and disease. While these moral statistics were laden with paternalism, they nevertheless focused squarely on the physical, social, spiritual, and mental condition of the American people. For better or worse, they placed human beings at the center of their calculating vision. Their unit of measure was bodies and minds, never dollars and cents. Yet around the middle of the century, money-based economic indicators began to gain prominence, eventually supplanting moral statistics as the leading benchmarks of American prosperity. Skipping ahead a bit, the article notes that in the first decades of the Republic, the United States developed into a commercial society, but not yet a fully capitalist one. One of the main elements that distinguishes capitalism from other forms of social and cultural organization is not just the existence of markets, but also of capitalized investments. The act through which basic elements of society and life, including natural resources, technologic discoveries, works of art, urban spaces, educational institutions, human beings, and nations are transformed or capitalized into income-generating assets that are valued and allocated in accordance with their capacity to make money and yield future returns. Save a smattering of government-issued bonds and insurance companies, such a capitalization of everyday life was mostly absent until the mid-19th century. There existed few assets in early America through which one could invest wealth and earn an annual return. Anyway, I highly recommend this article, which I'm just uh, excerpting from. It notes that by the progressive era, the logic of money could be found everywhere. The New York Times declared in January 1910, an eight-pound baby is worth at birth $362 a pound. That is a child's value as a potential wealth producer. If he lives out the normal term of years, he can produce $2,900 more wealth than it costs to rear him and maintain him as an adult. The title of the article was, What a Baby is Worth as a National Asset. Last year's crop reached a value estimated at $6.9 billion. The article concludes by noting that this particular way of thinking is still around and hard to miss today in reports from the government, research organizations, and the media. The piece does note that a century ago, money-based ideas of progress resonated mostly with business executives, most of whom were well-to-do white men. Measuring prosperity according to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, invented in 1896, Manufacturing output, or per capita wealth, made a good deal of sense for America's upper class, since they were usually the ones who possessed the stocks, owned the factories, and held the wealth. 
J.D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and other millionaire capitalists also came to recognize the power of financial metrics in their era. They began to plan for a private research bureau that would focus on the pricing of everyday life. These plans came to fruition in the 1920s, the formation of the corporate-funded National Bureau of Economic Research. The private institution would go on to play a major role in the invention of the gross national product in the 1930s and continues to operate today. Well, we've talked in this program many, many times about how this is not necessarily a very good way to measure human progress and how well we are all doing. Everyone seems, well, most people seem to recognize that, and yet economists have been slow to find adequate substitutions. This article closes by noting that by the early 21st century, American society's top priority became its bottom line. Net worth became synonymous with self-worth, and a billionaire businessman who repeatedly pointed to his own wealth as proof of his fitness for office was elected president. Look, I'm really rich. I knew there was a reason I kept around my Donald talking pen. And yes, although we've enjoyed our little flight into outer space and our return back down to planet Earth to talk about economics, yep, we're stuck with DJT. We expressed the possibility on this program recently that the president may be suffering from some early stages of dementia, and well, frankly, maybe not all that early. The jury is uh, still out on this, but here's a quote from the president which you may not find reassuring. This is Trump on the subject of homelessness. It's a phenomenon that started two years ago. It's disgraceful. I'm gonna maybe, and I'm looking at it very seriously. We're doing some other things, as you probably notice, like some of the very important things we're doing now, where we're looking at it very seriously because you can't do that. Mr. Millen agrees this is probably not a major contribution to the issue of homelessness. And of course, this leads us back to coronavirus, because these days, President Trump and coronavirus are two subjects that appear to be interwoven. In a little piece that appeared in Yahoo News, titled Coronavirus by the Numbers, notes the piece, as coronavirus cases continue to climb in more than 20 states, raising fears of a second wave, which causes me to stop and say, stop talking about a second wave. We're still in the first wave, people. We're still in the first wave. They note that some politicians have taken to waving away the worrisome news with a rudimentary, reassuring explanation. Of course the number of COVID-19 cases is going up, they say. That's what happens when you test more people. You find more infections. Last Monday, President Trump added his voice to this soothing chorus, saying, Our testing is so much bigger and more advanced than any other country. We've done a great job on this, that it shows more cases. Adding... Without testing or weak testing, we'd be showing almost no cases. Testing is a double-edged sword. Makes us look bad, but good to have, exclamation point times three. Later, at an event for seniors at the White House, Trump said, if we stopped testing right now, we'd have very few cases, if any. This opinion is being backed up by the vice president, who is reportedly the leader of the administration's coronavirus task force. On June 15th, Pence penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal claiming there is no second wave of coronavirus. Well, on that, actually, I can agree with him because we're still in the first. Pence then traveled to Iowa where we had lunch at a local restaurant with Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. 
and made remarks at Winnebago Industries touting U.S. quote, recovery, unquote. At the restaurant, it should be noted that neither Pence nor Reynolds nor the restaurant's owner nor patrons wore a mask, and he did not practice social distancing as he greeted diners. Pence attributed a rise in U.S. coronavirus cases to an increase in testing. An official familiar with the work of Pence's task force was a little more blunt. He told CNN that the surge in cases is also due to more infections. Said the official, they just don't want to deal with the reality of it. Regarding Pence's assertion that only a small percentage of places in the U.S. are seeing an uptick in cases, the senior CDC official said, I don't know what his sources are on that information, but that's not accurate. You can cherry-pick a handful of counties and use that as a way to say things are not as bad as they look, but that's not the reality. The official added, Our data shows that there continues to be spread, particularly in communities of color. It's both higher rates and disproportionate numbers. By state, the numbers are absolutely increasing, and they're increasing in states that opened up earlier. Back to the Yahoo page. They note that Trump is right about one thing. The U.S. is now conducting more COVID-19 tests than any other country. In total, about 465,000 a day, and per capita, about, well, 1.25 per thousand residents, one in a thousand. Doesn't sound great to me. But they note at Yahoo that his nonsensical, if a tree falls in the forest, suggestion that somehow coronavirus infections would cease to exist if we stopped trying to detect them is dangerously diluted. And saying so only contributes to a sense of complacency that threatens to further accelerate the spread of the virus. Down in Florida, Trump ally Ron DeSantis is voicing the same opinions. He said, as you're testing more, you're going to find more cases. And Florida has been finding more cases. On June 1st, Florida's seven-day average stood at 726 cases per day. As of June 15th, that has more than doubled to 1775. And I saw one report where they were pushing 3,000. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out that it's not because they're doing more testing. Florida has been conducting roughly the same average number of COVID-19 tests every day for the last month. In other words, the number of tests conducted per day is unchanged while average cases more than doubled. Thus, Trump and DeSantis are incorrect. Testing doesn't explain Florida's recent increase in infections. We predicted some weeks ago that we would see a spiking in cases about Flag Day, June, I guess it's 14th, and that appears to be coming true. Noted Yahoo, the coronavirus doesn't magically retreat when a governor decides it's time to relax lockdown measures. The pathogen will continue to spread wherever and whenever people interact at a distance of less than six feet without a mask, and especially indoors. Now, by some measures, it appears that the number of cases is somewhat reduced versus some weeks ago, and many are attributing this to the fact that it's warmer weather now, and that should have a beneficial effect on the spread of the virus. The little bits of saliva that carry the virus around on air currents uh, should dry up that much faster. Another way of looking at this is that if it wasn't summer right now, things would be even worse. And, of course, wait till fall. Anyway, something else the president did this week is worthy of note. He suggested that scientists have developed a vaccine for AIDS. During a press conference on police reform, Trump said, they've come up with the AIDS vaccine. As you know, there's various things, and now various companies are involved. 
Trump later appeared to backtrack these comments, saying AIDS was a death sentence, and now people live a life with a pill. It's an incredible thing. It does appear that the president mixed up the daily antiretroviral drugs, which uh, have proven so effective in controlling HIV, with a vaccine. Mr. Whelan believes that at least we can take some comfort in knowing that he has backed off on the suggestion that we can inject ourselves with bleach or use UV light interiorly. Let's take a detour into a little piece that was in Smithsonian Magazine, actually the current edition of that magazine, June 2020. It notes that in April of 1957, a new strain of a lethal respiratory virus emerged in East Asia. It caught local health authorities by surprise and eventually killed masses of people worldwide. Today, of course, that scenario sounds frighteningly familiar, but there is one key difference. Maurice Hilleman, an American microbiologist then running influenza monitoring efforts at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, saw the problem coming. He prepared the United States ahead of time. This is the pandemic, he recalled saying. It's here. Hilleman arranged for the U.S. military to ship samples of the pathogen, believed to be a novel influenza virus from Hong Kong, to his lab in Washington. For five days and nights, his team tested it against blood from thousands of Americans, and they found that this strain, H2N2, was unlike any flu that humans were known to have encountered. When it reached the United States, no one would be immune. Hilleman moved quickly to alert the government, even predicting when the virus would hit U.S. shores, the first week of September, right when schools would reopen. In the years since the 1918 pandemic, health officials had lost sight of the deadly power of aggressive strains of influenza viruses, and the U.S. Public Health Service ignored Hilleman's warnings. I was declared crazy, Hilleman told the pediatrician Paul Oft, who reports the conversation in his book, Vaccinated. Still, having identified the new strain, Hilleman sent samples of the virus to the six biggest pharmaceutical companies, directing them to produce a vaccine for this new flu. And they did, partly out of respect for Hilleman himself. Says George Daner, a historian, he had that sort of clout within the industry. Now, the pandemic of 1957-58 ultimately caused 1.1 million deaths worldwide. And it follows the 1918 crisis as the second most severe influenza outbreak in U.S. history. 20 million Americans got infected. 116,000 died. Yet researchers estimate that a million more Americans would have died if not for the pharmaceutical companies that distributed 40 million doses of Hilleman's vaccine that fall, inoculating about 30 million people. Let's go back where we started. It's April of 1957. A new strain of nasty flu turns up in East Asia. An on-the-ball scientist here in America decides to take steps. They make 40 million doses of vaccine. So instead of killing a million of us here in America, we only lost 116,000. Currently, of course, we have a novel virus that's just jumped ship from animals into humans. Humans do not have immunity to it. And we've lost 116, and we lost 116,000 people to it a week ago. This time, there is no vaccine that's going to ride to the rescue anytime soon. Now, if we're lucky, 
Now, if we're lucky, scientists here in America are going to be able to produce a vaccine that will be effective. And like the influenza vaccine of 60 years ago, many lives can be saved. But this is not a done deal. Anthony Fauci is optimistic that uh, at least some of these vaccines will pan out. They're going to manufacture them in great numbers as well in the hope that they prove to be effective. If they are, if all goes well, we might have some vaccines that work as early as next year. But keep in mind that we set out to find a vaccine for HIV in about 1984, I believe. And to date, we have not developed one yet. I think, we, I think we can be pretty optimistic that some antivirals are going to prove effective. But in the meantime, protect yourself. And I think by now you know how to do that. All right, in some other news, it turns out that hydroxychloroquine has been taken off the list for emergency use in the U.S. because it just doesn't seem to be panning out. A couple weeks back on the program, we mentioned that... Uh, some U.S. doctors were following the president's lead on hydroxychloroquine, at least people that were members of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, the AAPS. We talked on the program about how this group, uh, well, it's got some unusual credentials. They've made some odd claims in the past, like they question whether HIV causes AIDS, which it does. They argued that abortion causes breast cancer, which it does not. And what really got our attention was that they have even alleged that former President Barack Obama used hypnosis techniques to trick voters, especially Jewish people, into supporting him. Now, we, we talked about this on the air, and rather mysteriously, a recording has, has shown up in, in our mailbox. We are unable to verify really who sent it or where it came from, and we certainly can't verify its authenticity but it, it's rather curious in, in relation to what I just said. So I, I, guess, I guess we'll just air it, Mr. McMillan. Sounds good. All right. Well, here's an ele- a, a recording that we think is associated with these claims about um, Barack Obama hypnotizing voters, especially Jewish people. Uh, all right. Now, uh, Isaac, uh, Murray, and uh, Shlomo, uh, I'm going to need you all to uh, focus here. Uh, on my watch. Uh, notice how it's uh, going to swing uh, back and forth. This we can do. All right, good. All right. All right, now keep your attention here uh, on the watch. Uh, that's right. Uh, focus on the watch. Let your mind go. Uh, think of uh, looking at a blank uh, white piece of paper. Oh, it's blank, all right. Uh, your eyes are your eyes are growing heavy. Uh, you can you can barely keep moving. Very good, very good, very good. Yeah, you're feeling comfortable, relaxed. Uh, go ahead and uh, uh, close your eyes. Uh, just keep uh, listening to my voice. Now I'm going to lift your left arm up, Isaac. Uh, you should uh, just go ahead and uh, hold it there. Now, now, Murray, uh, I'm going to lift your right arm up. Uh, it's very, it's very comfortable. Just keep it right there. It is, it is. Now, uh, Shlomo, Shlomo, uh, I want you to think of some big contributions, really big, big contributions you can make uh, to my uh, uh, campaign. And you other fellows, you know, uh, just start uh, thinking of the same thing. Do I have to keep my arm up? 
Yeah, just just keep it right up there. It's kind of like a like a scarecrow. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to snap my fingers, and uh, when I do, uh, you can uh, go ahead and uh, open your eyes. Uh, Isaac, oh, Isaac, why is your arm up? I don't know, Mr. President. Uh, you can uh, you can put it down now. Uh, Murray, why is your, your arm up? Mr. President, I can't say. Well, you can uh, put it down too. Uh, the, the main thing now is you all want to contribute uh, in a big, big way to uh, supporting me. Uh, does that sound right, Shlomo? It certainly does, Mr. President, and I hope my friends here will join me in heading off to the bank. Well, uh, uh, let's hope so. Uh, all right. All right. Now come back uh, when you're through, and we'll uh, conduct another session. Uh, how's that sound, you guys? Yes, yes, we will. Would $2 million be enough? Well, for now, uh, that'll be uh, just swell. Uh, I'll see you all back here uh, tomorrow. Where's my checkbook? All right, the tape ends at this point, and you know, listeners, you can just make make of it what you will. I think at this moment we probably should take a break, so let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. (laughs) 